Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everybody. I'd like to welcome you to the annual Nicholas Catchlove Lecture. I'm Steve Simpson, the Academic Director of the Charles Perkins Centre, and this will be the second year we've had the great pleasure to be the host to the Nicholas Catchlove Lecture. Before we commence, I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land upon which the Charles Perkins Centre and this part of the University of Sydney is built, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, elders past and present, for whom the dream time is the beginning of knowledge from which came all existence, which is kind of relevant to this evening's speech um, and certainly to tonight's orator. So the annual lecture was established by Dr. Barry Catchlove AM in memory of his son Nick. And Barry is here with us this evening um, with his daughter Penny and we're very pleased to um, have them here to enjoy this evening. Barry, um, as you may already know, is an alumnus of the University MBBS in 1966. He's currently a Fellow of, of Senate and a Pro Vice-Chancellor here at the University of Sydney. He's also, I might say, been a tremendous supporter of the Charles Perkins Centre in its um, initial phases and he continues to be a great supporter and he's certainly, for me, been a, a source of continuing wisdom and support. So thank you from me um, to you, Barry, for that. Now, this evening, I'm going to hand over um, for the introduction to our distinguished um, international speaker to the leader or co-leader of the Charles Perkins Centre theme in sleep, and that's Professor Peter Sustuli. Um, Peter is the ResMed Professor of Sleep Medicine here at the Charles Perkins Centre and also based at North Shore Hospital. And he co-leads the theme uh, with um, Professor Phil de Chazal, who I saw somewhere else in the audience. Um, here he is. And the two of them have together been hosting uh, a symposium, the second symposium for the sleep theme, and that's being held here. And it's because of that that we've taken the advantage of welcoming you all together to come here this evening to hear Alan Pack, whom we have recruited for this special occasion. So with that, I'm going to hand over to Peter, and Peter will tell you more about Alan. Thank you. Thanks uh, very much, Steve. It's a real pleasure and honour to be here uh, tonight. Uh, thank you very much to the Catchlove family for being here with us. Um, it, it's my great pleasure and honour to uh, introduce Alan, who uh, is not only a leader of the sleep field, but uh, I consider him a friend and, and uh, a, a wonderful collaborator. Um, I visited him uh, back in 1991 um, in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, where he uh, founded one of the, the first comprehensive sleep centres in the world, um, a centre focused on sleep and circadian neurobiology. Um, he holds the John Micklow Professor of Medicine position there. Um, and really, Alan has been a leader uh, internationally in the development of both uh, sleep science and uh, clinical sleep medicine uh, across the globe. 
um, and he's a, a very fitting uh, orator tonight uh, to really highlight uh, the public health impacts of sleep and sleep disorders. Um, his current main areas of uh, research focus are around the functional genomic aspects of sleep and its disorders. Um, and as um, Steve said, we've taken advantage of his being in Australia to uh, uh, assist us with a, a series of workshops which are part of an international consortium that, uh, that he leads. So, Alan, we're very much uh, looking forward to uh, what you have to say about uh, sleep and uh, it's uh, been a new health frontier. Thanks very much. Well. <clears throat> So, so thank you very much, and I'm very honoured to be giving this Nicholas Catchlove lecture, so thank you very much. Uh, I think this is the fifth time I've been in Australia. I really love Australia. I think I've come here as a young person. This is where I've been working, <laughs> and not in the United States. It's just a wonderful country. What I'm going to try to do to convince you here is that sleep is really one of the major pillars of health. I think there's a recognition, a growing recognition, that having adequate sleep is really important uh, to health. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about the basic biology of this field, which is really fascinating. I'm going to talk about what circadian rhythm is, what is sleep, why do we sleep, which is one of the major biological questions of our time. What happens to us if we don't get enough sleep? How, what is the impact of that? I'm going to talk about common sleep disorders. And then finally, I'm going to talk about why do large companies now increasingly care about sleep in their employees? <clears throat> so that's really what the, the, the outline of this lecture is. Now, this is a very simple diagram, but it's a very important diagram in our field because what we believe, this goes back to Boberley from Switzerland, what we believe is there are two fundamental processes that interact to control the sleep-wake state. There's a circadian process, which we're calling C, which oscillates across the day. This is us awake, this is us at night with the lights off. And that's a, that's a diurnal or circadian process with a rhythm that's slightly different than 24 hours, but close to 24 hours. And then we have a sleep-promoting system, what we call process S. And this is like an old-fashioned egg timer. We, we wake up in the morning, the drive for sleep is very low. And then as the day goes on, the longer we're awake, the higher the drive for sleep becomes. What happens is during this part of the day, it's opposed by an alertness signal that comes from the clock. And we'll talk more about the clock in a minute. But there's an alertness signal that opposes the sleep-promoting signal, and then that wanes. And that then allows you basically to, to go to sleep. And then when you go to sleep, you flip, essentially. It's like an old-fashioned egg timer. You flip it, and you recover across the night here, and you're back to, you know, being refreshed, and you start again. So the, the basic idea is... There's this interaction between these two basic processes. Now, what, what's known when the clock was, uh, clock was found in the molecular mechanism, the clock was found, which I'll explain in a minute, one of the big surprises was the clock was not just in the brain. There was a clock in every single organ. Every cell in your body essentially has a clock. Uh, and, so that the, the, and that controls a lot of what's going on. And what you've got is you've got this, these clock mechanisms which are ticking along, and then they interact, the so-called local clocks, and then the sleep-wake system comes in and it, it, it exerts its own influence on the changes in gene expression, as does the pattern of food intake. So it's very complicated. There's intrinsic clocks in every organ, there's a sleep-wake system, and then the pattern of food, food intake. And what that does, 
what all of that does is about 15 to 20 percent of all the genes we express show a diurnal rhythm. There's a change across the day in all of these genes, and they oscillate. And so it, the important concept is that the function of our organs, our liver, our lung, our heart, is different during the night than it is during the day. There's a whole biology to that. And in fact, what's happening is, for example, we're storing things at night, we're using them up during the day, if you think of it, metabolism. So one of the key concepts is this, this is a, a body-wide phenomenon. Uh, but there's a master clock, because what we know is there's a master clock which is in the brain in the suprachiasmatic nucleus, and we believe there's a clock orchestra. So there's clocks out here in every tissue, and then we have this master clock, and the master clock is synchronizing all of, the, all of these different clocks. Now, what happens is if they, if they fall apart and they all start doing their own thing, which can happen in shift work. One of the problems with shift workers is you get this, this clock desynchrony. When you get clock desynchrony, then you can get metabolic abnormalities. So as long as the system is working in sync, you're okay. But if it falls apart, uh, you can get adverse consequences. So as I said, the master clock is in the suprachiasmatic nucleus of the hypothalamus. There's a group of cells there that can basically keep time. And as I'll explain in a minute, the clock is produced. We know how it ticks. It ticks because of the molecular feedback mechanism uh, that, that can creates the, t the, the timing, essentially. Now, the, the actual clock itself, the, the, the period of this clock, the, the rate at which it oscillates, is slightly different than 24 hours. It varies a bit between people, usually less than 24 hours. But what happens is it's entrained on a daily basis by the light-dark cycle. So the major thing that keeps the clock in, in the 24-hour rhythm is the light-dark cycle. And the light-dark cycle is very, very important for entraining the clock. And what we know is there's a specific pathway straight from the eye to the master clock. There's a retinal hypothalamic track, and so there's a light information coming in, and it goes straight to the clock, and that entrains the clock to get it to 24 hours. Now, what we also know is that the light system for, 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 the, for training the clock is different than vision. It's a completely separate light system is what it works at. And this was described a number of years ago by Russell Forster and others because what they did is they created this mouse where they could knock out a particular thing, a transcription factor, and the mouse did not develop rods and cones in its retina. So it was blind. So the mouse was completely blind because it didn't develop the normal vision sensing thing in the retina. And yet the amazing thing was when they got that mouse and they changed the light-dark system, it completely entrained normally to the clock. So it was realized, oh my God, there's an entire separate system here. There's a track coming down and there's an entire separate system. And, and Russell Foster and others found out what that system was. And, and what they found was that retinal ganglion cells, which are across the whole, the whole eye, they, they, they express this pigment called melanopsin. And melanopsin is what's sensing this thing and it's sending the signals going straight from the eye uh, down, to the, down to the SCN. And what's now known is that melanopsin responds best to blue light. It's got a very particular thing in terms of the light that it senses, and it's basically blue light. And what that's done is that's created a cottage industry, essentially, a blue light cottage industry, so people can give you blue light. 
they stimulate you with blue light or they give you light, blue light blocking glasses and so on. And the, some of the computer systems, they, they turn off the blue light at night because they don't want you getting alert and so on. So there's a whole world out there of people manipulating blue light by giving it to you or blocking it and, and trying to basically uh, control the circadian system. Now, what is the circadian rhythm? So basically what, what was described, and this was described initially in Drosophila, was that there are clock molecules and clock proteins. And these things oscillate across the day. And what they do is when they're produced, they form this complex and they go back into the nucleus and they inhibit their own production. So there's a negative feedback loop. The main thing is this negative feedback loop. Clot molecules produced, they assemble themselves, go back into the nucleus and turn themselves off. And that's the way this, this thing works. There's other negative and positive feedback loops involved. Now, what's happened this year, and this has been a very important year for the circadian biology, because the Nobel Prize in Medicine was given to the three people who made this initial discovery of how the clock works. It was done in Drosophila, Michael, Michael Rojbach, who's at Brandeis, Jeff Hall, who's also at Brandeis, and Michael Young at Rockefeller. Now, the story of this goes back to about 1970, 1971, in a paper by Kanaka, and they were working in Seymour Benzer's lab, and Jeff Hall actually did a postdoc with, with, with Seymour Benzer. And they were feeding, to, to, to Drosophila, rather, they were feeding this mutagen, mutagen which was creating you know, mutations across the genome. And they found flies, and they're looking at the circadian rhythm of these flies, and they found three different flies. They found flies that had a very short period, wasn't 24 hours, it was a lot shorter. They found flies that had a very long period, and then they found flies that had no period at all. They were completely arrhythmic. That was about 1970-71. Now, today, in today's world, we would be able probably to tell you next week <laughs> what these mutations were, given the technology we have, with, with sequencing technology. It took them from 1971 to 1985 at the technology existed at that time to find out what the gene was and it was ca called period they called it period and it turned out that the short the short one the long one and the arrhythmic were all mutations in the same gene there were different mutations but in the same gene and then they all they, they went on from there and, and and these guys apparently jeff hall was a kind of guy doing drosophila behavioral genetics rojbach was a molecular biologist so they're trying to work out how does all of this work and apparently they played basketball together <laughs> and they started talking in the locker room <laughs> and that's how they got together and, and they worked in this and they were the ones who showed this negative feedback loop and that that thing principle which was established in fruit flies is held up in mammalian systems and the whole story goes on it's just it's just a tremendously wonderful story so it's great that these guys got the nobel prize this year now what, what the clock does the clock controls a lot of processes right and one of the processes it controls is sleep and i told you this process s and one of the concepts is that, the, that there's there's an accumulation this drive for sleep this increasing drive for sleep the longer you're awake is it's driven by sleep promoting molecules that increase while you're awake and one of them is adenosine 
And so adenosine is a molecule where people have shown by microdialysis that the levels of that change if I keep you awake. And coffee, which we all take, I mean, uh, antagonizes the action of adenosine. I say that the biggest pharmaceutical chain in the planet is probably Starbucks, because Starbucks is giving you these giant ventes and <laughs> lo 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 loads of caffeine and so on to antagonize adenosine. And one of the key concepts for humans, it varies between animals. The clock period is very similar in different animals, but the duration of wakefulness that you can sustain varies between animals. Humans, we are programmed to stay awake for about 16 hours. So we can sustain wakefulness for 16 hours. And if we go beyond that, beyond that, we get impaired. And the longer we go beyond that, the more impaired we become. So we're programmed to stay awake, basically, for about 16 hours. When you get to beyond 20 hours, you're equivalent to the BAC limit in terms of your performance. So the longer you're awake, uh, the worse your performance becomes. And, and, and the other concept is we consolidate memories during sleep. Now, What's happened, and we were part of this in, in the last few years, most of the research until about 2000 was done in mammalian systems and rats and mice and so on and humans. Uh, but then in, in, in 2000, we published a paper where we showed that the fruit fly, which had been very important for circadian research, also had sleep. And we developed various behavioral criterion to say an animal was asleep. We weren't doing EEGs like we do in humans and mice, but we're doing behavior. And, and, and here's a couple of examples. What happens when you're asleep is it takes a bigger stimulus to get you moving, right? You're an arousal. You, you, you block out the sensory information coming in, and so, so you, you don't wake up when things happen, and you have to get a bigger noise. And, and you can see this change in arousal threshold. The other thing that happens is if you, if you have sleep and you don't allow the animal to sleep, what happens is when it eventually goes to sleep, you've got a rebound. There's a homeostasis, and you get deeper sleep, you go faster to sleep, and so on. And so these criteria have allowed us to identify sleep in all these model systems, zebrafish, drosophila, and in the worm. And each one has a distinct advantage. The zebrafish are transparent, so you can do wonderful things to see what's going on in the brain. Drosophila is a great model for talking about genetics and so on. And the great advantage of C. elegans is there's only 302 neurons, and you know every single one of them and who they connect to. And, and in fact, what the, 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 the neurons that actually drive sleep in C. elegans have been identified. And one of the reasons for studying these simple animal models is you can move much faster, uh, as I've indicated, each has got an advantage. Now, we weren't the first people to say that there's behavioral criteria that you could use to identify sleep in non-mammalian systems. The first person to do that was Eileen Tobler in the 1980s in Switzerland. And she described sleep in cockroaches. So she did cockroaches, and she described the behavioral state in cockroaches. Now, I'd never been sure why cockroaches? Because they're not one of, one of the classic models. I just thought maybe there's a lot in the lab or something. <laughs> and it was very cheap just wiping them up and, <laughs> and doing your thing. So the first description we have to acknowledge of behavioral criterion was in cockroaches by Eileen Tobler. Now, unlike in, in, in Drosophila and zebrafish, we don't identify at the moment 
different stages of sleep, but there's a magnificent architecture to sleep in humans. We talk about non-rapid eye movement sleep, which is in, in three stages, and this is the deep stage when you see these big slow waves in your EEG, and then you have rapid eye movement sleep. And rapid eye movement sleep is an amazing stage of our life because what happens in REM sleep is the brain is incredibly active. There's flurries of activity, and some of the flurries produce these rapid eye movements, but you're paralyzed. So the brain, you have your dreams in rapid eye movement sleep, there's flurries of activity, but you're actively paralyzed and you don't live out the dreams. Now, there is a specific sleep disorder called REM behavior disorder where the paralysis no longer works. And what happens to these people when they go into rapid eye movement sleep, they, 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 they basically live out their dreams, and they're often violent dreams. You know, they can be choking their wife or whatever it is, you know. And, and so, so it's a very interesting stage of our life. And what we know in humans is that's, there's a cycle to this. So you start the night off when you go to sleep, you go down to one, two, then you get non-REM, non three, deep sleep, and then you get a cycle of REM sleep. And as the night goes on, you get these 90-minute cycles, and as the night goes on, these episodes of rapid eye movement sleep get longer, and there's more flurries of activity, there's more rapid eye movements. So when you're waking up in the morning out of, out of sleep, you're typically waking up out of REM sleep, right? Because the, the episodes get longer, so when you wake up in the morning, it's usually out of REM sleep. Now, there is a phenomenon that occurs in about 12% of the population. It's really, it can be very scary to people, but it's a very little clinical significance, and that is sleep paralysis. So what happens is when you're in rapid eye movement sleep, as I said, you're, you're atonic, you're paralyzed. And when you wake up, you may not throw the, everything. All the switches are not thrown synchronously. So you wake up, you're awake, but you can't move. And that may be gone for one or two minutes because you still get the atonia and then it goes away. And, and it can be a scary phenomenon and it's described in about 12% of the population. Now, I talked about the clock and I talked about sleep-wake, and there's a very important interaction between them. So when we wake up in the morning, let me just walk you through this kind of crude schematic here. What this is showing is, is, is the drive for sleep in this axis, just a, a crude drawing here. But when you wake up in the morning, you're refreshed, right? I mean, you slept, the drive for sleep is low, and so on. And then, and then what happens is, is right after lunch, you get sleepy. So that's a perfectly normal phenomenon, the siesta. Now, the siesta's there in Spanish cultures. Obviously, people take a nap and so on, and, and they sleep then. And then what happens is in America, we don't do that. We just push through that, and probably it's true in Australia. Even though you're sleepy, which is perfectly normal, you push through that, and then you get to the evening. In, in the evening hours here, and we consider the evening hours the forbidden zone for sleep. Right? It's very difficult to sleep. So the key thing is, you can't just say when you're going to go to sleep because the clock is basically set in the timing that that's appropriate. And so in the evenings, the forbidden zone for sleep, then what happens is you sleep again late at night, 10 p.m., you drive, and you go to sleep. So there's two times a day you get sleepy. You get sleepy in the siesta time, and then obviously you get sleepy at night. And sleep efficiency is impaired, and I'll explain this in a minute. If you try to sleep at a time, that the clock is saying you're supposed to be awake. You may get to sleep, but you have very poor quality sleep, and it's hard to sustain sleep. Uh, what we also know is that there, there are differences between us. So the clock is set in when you can get to sleep and when you're awake and so on, but we're not all the same. And in fact, we know this is genetic. 
and we talk in our field about, about larks, and these are people, these are not party people. They go, they, they go to bed early, and they wake up, and, and, and so on. I think there's a huge advantage in being, in being a lark. Um, many of our deans at the University of Pennsylvania have been real larks. One of the very successful deans we have, Bill Kelly, he was in in the morning at 6 o'clock, and he had two shifts at secretaries and so on. <laughs> and I remember this story where he asked the chair of radiology to come to a meeting at 6.30 in the morning. And the guy was really quick. He said, look, he said, I'm sorry. I've already got a meeting then, but I'm open at 5.30. <laughs> so, so, so you get these larks. And then, then you get people like me. I mean, I'm an hour late person. Very difficult. I find it very difficult to get to 7 a.m., 7.30 meetings. And so, so there are these differences. And recently, we've, we've, people have identified genes for what we call chronotype. And this has come particularly from the UK Biobank. The United Kingdom put all this money in. They've got 500,000 people. They've genotyped. They have all the genetic information. They administer questionnaires to them. And they could work out whether you're a lark or an owl. And a number of different genes have been identified from the UK Biobank. Now, as I've indicated, one of the key concepts for people need to realize is it's hard to sleep if you're trying to sleep at the wrong circadian time. That's a hard thing. You have poor quality sleep. So, for example, shift work. So what happens in a classic night shift worker? Because they don't actually completely adjust because in the, the days off, they're going back to being day people and the night people, so they never actually adjust. Uh, and so what happens to these people is in, in, in the morning, when, when they go home, they are very sleepy. They're incredibly sleepy people in the morning when they go home. In fact, in shift workers, the drive home in the morning is probably the most dangerous thing about it because they're really sleepy and they have to stay alert to drive home. Many years ago, I was involved in a drowsy driving uh, thing up in New York State with Governor Cuomo, the previous Governor Cuomo, given the way my age here. He put, he put together a drowsy driving task force, and I flew up to Albany several times, and we were talking about drowsy driving. I saw one of the groups that's really a problem are night shift workers, and it's the way home in the morning. And, and they put a focus group together, and they brought in these 20 night shift workers and they interviewed them. And every one of them told them how difficult it was to drive home in the morning. There was one guy and he, he said, what I do, he said, is before I drive home, I go and get a bag of ice. And then as I'm driving home, I'm applying that ice to various parts of my anatomy <laughs> to stay awake, right? They said, good God, we don't think we're going to do that as a public education thing. <laughs> and so, so what happens is that if they get home and you, you've got a big drive for sleep and you get to sleep pretty quickly, but you can't sustain it. So, because the clock is saying, no, no, you're supposed to be awake. So even though you're quite, you're quite, you know, got a big drive for sleep, by one or two o'clock, you're awake. And now you're awake from two all the way through to the next morning. So that's the life of a shift worker. And many places now, we, we have this policy, it was a crazy policy, that if you're found sleeping on the night shift, you can get fired. Right? Many hospital systems have that policy. They find a nurse sleeping in the night shift, they say, that's the end of you. They're firing people. It's crazy. They're, it's like if you're hungry, you can't eat. And if you're really sleepy, you can't sleep. So many, many systems now are starting to say, we've got to build naps into this. We've got to, we've got to let people sleep. And in addition to that, we've got to think about people driving home in the morning. Do we drive them home? <clears throat> 
like some systems in the States do, with residents to make sure they're safe? Do we let them sleep before we drive home? You've got to think about that. There's a fundamental biology. The other place where you guys will <laughs> appreciate this, you know, if you come to Australia, <laughs> you're 12 hours out of sync. Uh, because what happens when you fly and you, you have this so-called jet lag, the clock, the master clock moves very slowly. It moves about an hour a day. So the light-dark cycle is different, and the light-dark cycle is moving you and trying to get you back into sync. But it moves very slowly. So now you're here, you're jet-lagged, you're very sleepy, you're trying to sleep, you go off to sleep. It's like a shift worker, but you can't sustain it. And then it, over a few days, you obviously adjust. So probably the worst jet-lag you get is USA to Australia, right? Because <laughs> it's a 12-hour difference. So jet-lag and shift work are two examples where the, this, this asynchrony between the sleep and circadian system has a profound impact on what we do. Now, I've explained this biology, and let me just show you this biology is, a, is affected in the real world. This is a paper we published years ago in 1995. We went down to North Carolina, and North Carolina had a uniform crash reporting system across the whole state, and it was one of the few states that had a, had a thing on their accident report form, the crash report form, where the policeman at the scene said the driver fell asleep. We don't know how they came to that conclusion, but there was a box they ticked. There was no alcohol involved. And we got that data, and we got it year after year for several years. And there was an incredibly robust rhythm of these fall-asleep crashes. So what you see here is this is a number of crashes in this axis going from midnight to midnight. And this is in young people between 16 and 25 years of age. They were the biggest at-risk group. Young males driving alone in the middle of the night. They were the biggest at-risk group. And what you can see is, as the night went on, the, the drive, they're not sleeping, the drive for sleep is increasing, so you see this increase. And then, of course, you get the morning, it drops off. You, you see this, you know, I'm not sure, but it looks like a siesta maybe there. You certainly see this forbidden zone for sleep. There's very few crashes in here, and then it picks up again. So the rhythm I just explained to you in terms of the basic biology is reflected in this real-world data. And that rhythm, you could lay that rhythm each year right on top of each other. It was a very robust phenomenon. If you looked at crashes, fall asleep crashes in people over 65, there was a very different rhythm, right? So here's the number of crashes, a lot less of them. There's nothing at night. Because people at my age, when I was a teenager, I would drive in the night, I drove my kids and stuff, crazy. But I don't drive at night, I would never be driving at one in the morning, right? So what you find in older people is you don't find nighttime, and the only thing that's left is the siesta. So you see the siesta coming through in, in older drivers. So, so the, rhythm, the rhythm I just explained to you is really reflected in, in this real-world data. Now, one of the major questions, of course, in our field is why do we sleep? We spend a third of our life sleeping. Why are we doing this? Right? <laughs> you just hope it's got a very important function. Al Rastafin, who's one of the founders of Sleep Research, said, if there's no reason we sleep, it's the largest evolutionary mistake that was made. Why are we spending a third of our lives doing something of no value? And, and, and one of the questions, what's happened in the last few years is we've got hints essentially of why we sleep. Uh, because what we've done, us and others have done, is we've looked at changes in gene expression between animals who are sleeping and animals who are awake, and we're sacrificing them at the same time of day to take out the circadian effect. And that's led to a number of theories, if you like, or more than theories now, of why we sleep. And I, I'm in the group that there isn't a single function to sleep. I believe there's lots of functions to sleep. And I'll show in a minute, I think sleep's not just for the brain. 
So that one of the major theories is the synaptic homeostasis theory. This is where, you know, you, you're forming new connections in neurons and you're doing this during wakefulness. And the, 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 this theory came about initially because, and this was Tononi's group in Sorelli, uh, when they did the microarrays and looked at what changes in gene expression, they found that genes called ARC and BDNF were going up during wakefulness and they were going down during sleep. And these genes drive the, the increase in connections. So they, they come up with the idea that what happens when we're awake is we're making these new connections in the brain and then at night we're pruning them. We're, we're, we're getting, getting rid of all this stuff because you keep making new connections day after day, your brain will explode. So, so they come up with the idea that the brain cells are pruned, which is a shy theory. Now, now one of people people say, well, you know, how, how does that work? I mean, we think that what we do during sleep, in fact, there's good data that, that, that you consolidate memories. If you do tasks and, and you try to get people to do it before they go to sleep, and then you test them in the morning, they, 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 they improve particular ingenuity and stuff, you've learned the hidden roles and stuff. So there's something going on during sleep to enhance memories. And if you just do eight hours apart during the day, you don't see that. So there's something specific about sleep at memories. So how could this work? How if it is the case that I'm getting rid of these connections, I enhance memories? Recently, groups at NYU have shown using a, what's called a geophoton camera, which they can put in the brain, and they can watch these, these connections forming. What you find is if you train the mouse in a motor task and you look in the motor cortex, you actually see new connections being formed during sleep. So what it looks like is if you're trying to remember something, you're forming new connections, but you're getting rid of the background by the pruning. So this is the whole uh, synaptic homeostasis theory. The paper we published, what we found when we did, you know, looked at cortex in another part of the brain, and we asked the question, what genes were changing expression? We found that, that, that all the cholesterol synthesis genes were going up during sleep, all the genes involved in making heme, and other things. So the idea then is, and your mother probably told you this, right? It, this is a time of recovery. So what you're doing is you're making stuff. So you do this switch. During the day, you're using the energy resources you have to fire the neurons and keep the pumps going. And then when you shut down at night, what you do is you switch and you start making things. And you start making lipids, you start making membranes, restoring stuff so you're ready for the new day. That's an, another important theory that's out there. Another thing Jeannie and do in our group has particularly used this is what you find in all of these studies, if you sleep-deprive individuals, and we're talking individuals now, birds, rats, mice, and so on, uh, if you sleep-deprive them, what you find is you find what's called the unfolded protein response goes up. So what happens in a cell? Cells are making proteins, and the proteins have been, you know, folded and all of that business to be normal. If the cell is under stress, it doesn't fold the proteins properly. And then what happens is the cell responds to that and says, oh, my God, this is not good. I've got to do something. And there's a so-called unfolded protein response. And you see that in all of these systems if you sleep-deprive animals. And, and that's important because what that means is that sleep deprivation is not innocuous. This is not just, you know, you're sleepy and all that. There's molecular changes taking place in the brain. And we believe that these molecular changes taking place in the brain can have very adverse consequences long term because the unfolded protein response and so on is very important in neurodegeneration, for example. So that's another important thing. Another paper that shows another function of sleep uh, was published in Science in 2013. And what they showed is they showed 
the, the way, the, the, well, the, the key thing here is there's a system to clear the brain. So you're clearing stuff out of the brain. And what they showed was the clearance of molecules out of the brain is much more productive, if you like, much more efficient during sleep. And there's various ways they showed that, and so on. So the theory is that the trash trucks for the brain arrive during sleep. Right? And if you, if you put in beta amyloid, for example, which is involved in Alzheimer's, and you look at the clearance, that's the clearance you get during wakefulness, and that's the clearance you get during sleep. So you're clearing things out of the brain. So things are happening during the day, you're making stuff, reactive oxygen species, you're getting A-beta's being produced, but then when you go to sleep, you're clearing them out of the brain. So there's a number of different uh, functions, essentially, of sleep. But it's sleep only for the brain. There's a very key paper in our field being published in Nature that said sleep is for the brain by the brain. And I don't believe that. What we did is we did again the microarrays and we did this in heart and lung. And what we found was that the, the, the genes I was talking about, the stress response, the protein folding, they were changing in heart and lung. And you could lay them right on top of each other. And so there really was this phenomenon. We think that what's happening is there's signals somehow coming from the brain uh, to control these things in the peripheral organs. So there's certainly lots of functions to sleep. So what we believe is that the sleep has key functions, not only for brain, but for peripheral tissue. And so if you get inadequate sleep, you're not going to get these things happening and you're going to have adverse consequences. That's what we believe. We believe there's a fundamental biology. It's a really important stage of our life. We're not just doing it for a third just because, you know, we, things are happening there that are really important to our well-being. Now, if you think about sleep loss, and I'm going to t I'll talk about sleep disorders later on, but if you think about sleep loss, what I indicated was we can stay awake for 16 hours. If we go longer than that, then, then you get impaired. You go out to 38 hours, right? You're really impaired. And, uh, you know, you just can't function so well. So the short-term sleep loss. But the other thing we know now is that long-term, if you get inadequate sleep day after day, that thing accumulates, right? So you build a sleep debt uh, as it goes on. And what's happening in the, in the U.S. is typically people, they start the Monday morning, right? They, they you know, doing okay. They, 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 they cut back on their sleep to be more productive. By the time they get to the end of the week, they're pretty sleep-deprived, right? I tell people, if you want to negotiate with your chair, don't meet them on a Friday afternoon. Meet them on a Monday, right? <laughs> and, you, and you have this phenomenon of catch-up sleep. And what's happening in the U.S. now is we're now, the CDC is now monitoring sleep durations around the country, and there's certain hot spots, uh, which actually line up with the obesity hot spots uh, where you see inadequate uh, sleep. And both short-term, I mean, you could have people who are chronically deprived, and then on top of that, they have a tremendous amount of, you know, short-term sleep loss. Now, this is a paper from Hans van Dongen and David Dinges, who are colleagues of mine at Penn, and this is very important. What they did is they took healthy people like yourselves, and what they did is they brought them in and they deprived them for 30 hours. And every two hours, they administered a test called a PVT. And it looks at performance lapses. Because what happens to you when you're really sleepy is you can't sustain wakefulness, right? So, and, and this test brings it out because what you do is you look at a screen and the, at random intervals, a light comes on and you have to respond. Now, if you have a microsleep, you drift off to sleep, you don't respond. 
And, and what you get is a lapse. It's defined as a reaction of over 500 milliseconds. And that this is the cumulative lapses over 19 trials for 38 hours of sleep deprivation. And this is subject N to subject K. Now, if you go here, this is a subject, and, and what they did is they did it, and then they sent them home, and a few weeks later, they repeated it. So this was repeated trials in the same individual. And what you can see is this individual here had very few lapses. And then when you brought them back again, very few lapses. This individual here had huge numbers of lapses, and they had them in both occasions. So what it meant was it was a biological trait. Some people could basically resist, if you like, this duration of sleep deprivation, and some couldn't. When I used to do internal medicine attending, and you go in and meet the residents in the morning, you saw these people. Because this person here, they looked great. They were babbling away. And, <laughs> and so this person here had their head down in the table because they just couldn't sustain wakefulness. So there's a huge variation between us and how, how, how we can handle sleep deprivation. Uh, and you can see the interclass correlation is very high. What happened was Sam Kuna, who's in the audience, I think, he, he conducted, and I was part of this, and we did, a we did a classic twin study looking at monozygotics and dizygotic, you know, identical and non-identical twins, which is a way to estimate heritability. And this was a very heritable trait. It, it was about 0.8 was the heritability. So, so this, just like the, the, when, you, when, when you go to sleep, when you wake up, is controlled by your genes, so is this. How resistant you are to sleep loss. And that's something that's hardwired into you. Now, what we know is that there are some, some genes, that are, there are not a ton of them, but there's no question that a mutation in a clock-associated gene, DEC2, leads to short sleep. This was originally described by Patachek's group in a paper in Science uh, in 2009. All they did was they had people filling out on a website when did they go to sleep and when did they wake up. And they found two individuals. What, they, they went to sleep at 10 p.m. and they're awake at 4, 6 hours. And they weren't impaired at all during the day. And they went out at that time and they, they, there was no exome sequencing going on then. And what they did is they sequenced all the clock genes and they found a mutation in one of the clock-associated genes, DEC2. What we did is when we did this twin study, we sequenced DEC2 and all our twins and we found another a twin pair who were non-identical and there was another mutation in that gene. It wasn't the same, it was in the same exon, it was a different place, and we had, we had actually described, and the twin who had the mutation slept two hours less than the, part, than the other twin, and they were very resistant to sleep loss. But when we looked at different stages of sleep, the non-REM sleep was almost identical. It was actually changing the amount of dream sleep you had, and so on. Now, the reason that Patachet papers in science is they knocked that human mutation into mice, and then they deprived them, and there was almost no recovery. They were very resistant to, to sleep loss. And so we certainly know that that exists. Now, when we published that paper on the, on the, uh, the, the, the different one in DEC2, uh, it was published in the BBC, and the BBC called it the Thatcher gene. They said when Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister of Great Britain, she only slept three or four hours a night. So they thought that she must have had this short sleeping gene. Uh, in the last presidential campaign, it was actually during the primaries, I was contacted by a reporter from Politico, and they said to me, do you think Donald Trump has that short sleeping gene? I said, well, I said, he could do, but I said, you know, it's very rare 
What's much commoner are people just don't sleep enough, they're sleep deprived, and they're cognitively impaired. <laughs> right. Now, now, now people are starting to think, well, maybe one of the phenotypes we can use, and I'll show you this in a minute, is are there gene variants associated with early morning tweeting? Right? I mean, can we use tweeting when you tweet? And there's a very interesting paper by Ronenberg, which just came out in Current Biology, where he looked at the circadian rhythm of Donald Trump's tweets. So apparently there's some website you can go to and you can download all the tweets of where they are. And they come from three different phones. One of the phones is only during the day. That's got to be Kellyanne Conway. And, and the, Trump, the Trump phone is an Android. And what, what you can see is that the spelling errors are in the Trump phone, right? <laughs> and as you know, he came up with a new word, coifee, K-O-Y-F-E-T-E. He said, this is somebody who's got coifee. They said, what? What is that? Right? So nobody knows what it is, but there are now in Washington bars, you can buy a coifee cocktail, right? <laughs> so people responded. So what he did with this, this tweet data is he double plotted it the way circadian rip people do, and you can see the red is every tweet and you can see all the tweets so just before he goes to bed that guy is manically you know <laughs> tweeting away right then you can see even during here which is sleep he's waking up and tweeting and then in the morning he really gets going with the tweets right and you can see it, look, it looks like a Drosophila activity thing you get a lot of attention here with the tweets just before you go to sleep and then you get a ton in the morning and then of course during the night there's a low level but they're not non-existent so it's very very interesting uh, whether you can use tweeting as a is a way of going. Now, what, what I, I talked about acute sleep loss, then, then the idea is that if I deprive you or give you inadequate sleep, day after day, it builds up. And, and here, here again, this is the days of sleep restriction. We're giving people eight hours in bed, six hours in bed, four hours in bed, and we're looking at these lapses. And what you can see is it just keeps going. The less sleep you get, the more impaired you are. And if you look at the lines, it, it just is cumulative. It, it, people have pushed this maybe to two weeks, something like that. You don't see any adaptation. So it's not like, you know, you're adapting to this thing. You just keep, keep, keep getting worse uh, over the time. And you don't adjust. You just keep getting worse. Now, what's interesting is if you look at the objective data here, the lapses, this is what you get. If you ask people, how sleepy do you feel? And the scales for this, you get this. So what happens actually is that that stops. So after a couple of days, you don't report you're getting any more sleepy, but you're objectively getting more sleepy. And so there's this disconnect between how much you can recognize how sleepy you are because it, it, just, it just flattens out, uh, whereas objectively it's getting worse. Now, how, how does sleep deprivation affect you? So I've indicated earlier one of the ways it affects you is, is wake state is unstable. And you've all had that. You've, everybody in this room has had that. What happens is you can't sustain wakefulness and you just drift off to sleep and you have a micro-sleep. And then you sort of come to. Now, if you guys have, this is a forbidden zone for sleep, which is a good thing. There's probably not too much micro-sleeping going on here. But remember, if you're in a room like this and you have a micro-sleep, it's not a big deal. If you have a micro-sleep driving your car at 55 miles an hour, that may be the last micro-sleep you ever have. 
Because in that short interval, you can be off the road into a bridge abutment and cause tremendous damage to yourself and others. And, and what you get is, is you get errors related to that. But it's not just of microsleeps. You don't process data. You, 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 your cognitive slowing occurs. If you're trying to keep going, you get errors and so on. So there's lots of cognitive things. In addition to that, what we now know is that sleep deprivation, chronic shift work and so on, you get increased risk of hypertension, vascular disease, insulin resistance. We know it changes appetite. If you sleep deprived people, they, then they, they turn to very high calorie foods. It, it changes leptin ghrelin levels that control your appetite. And, and we believe that part of the increased obesity, I'm not saying it's a huge part of it, but part of it is probably the chronic sleep uh, deprivation that we have in the United States. Now, in addition to sleep loss, which is often behaviorally induced, you have common sleep disorders, insufficient sleep, obstructive sleep apnea, insomnia, restless leg syndrome, where you get sensations at night. And this, these, all these sleep disorders are explained by biology. Let me just explain a, a bit about obstructive sleep apnea, which is a, one of the common things. And people in Sydney here, Australia, have made enormous contributions in this area. Basically, what happens is here's your tongue. This is a side shot of you, basically. Here's your airway, and your airway is completely open. What happens when you go to sleep is you lose tone in these upper airway muscles. And as a result, the airway just collapses and it blocks, and it blocks here right at the back of your tongue. And what then happens is you're trying to breathe, the oxygen levels go down, the carbon dioxide levels go up, and then the brain wakes you up to a lighter stage of sleep, and, you, and the whole process repeats. Because when you get this arousal, the signal goes out to these upper airway dilator muscles, and the airway opens. Now, this is an incredibly easily treatable condition. There are issues about adherence, but the treatment of choice is what's called continuous positive airway pressure. It's an incredibly simple idea, right? It really is a simple idea. If this airway is blocking, why don't I just put some air under pressure and hold the thing open? And that's what happened. And this was developed here right in Sydney by Colin Sullivan. It's a classic paper in 1981. And I, mean, I know they've seen the pictures. They went out and they put all this stuff together. They had this patient and they, <laughs> they managed to jerry-rig this thing and, and then apply positive pressure. Remarkable, because all of these apneas and cessations of breathing disappeared. That, that discovery or that description in 1981 has led to millions of people in the planet being treated for obstructive sleep apnea. It led to the creation of a very successful Australian company, ResMed. You, you mentioned about ResMed. And that, that was... All of that came from this, this discovery, if you like, right here in Sydney. I, I wished I had done this, but I didn't, so <laughs> Collins to be congratulated for what he did. Now, now, what happens when you have sleep apnea is your sleep's not stable because you keep waking up, and that's shown here, all this wakening. And then what happens here is your oxygen level goes up and down. Every time you stop breathing, your oxygen level declines. When you start breathing again, it goes back up, and you get this cycling. Okay, so you see without this, you get sleep fragmentation, low oxygen. Now, the reason this, just as Scalia is showing here, is he, he was found, as you know, he, he was found dead in his bed, basically, in a place in Texas. But what was next to him was a CPAP machine that he wasn't wearing. 
So it's believed that, that he actually died from obstructive sleep apnea. Now, he, of course, caused huge uh, political stuff in the United States because he died in the last year of the Obama administration, and the Republicans refused to appoint uh, a Supreme Court justice. Now, what happens when you, when you go on to CPAP here is you can see that the sleep is now, there's all this interruption has gone away, your oxygen level stable. And what you can see here is you can get this REM rebound. People with obstructive sleep apnea may not have a dream sleep in years because every time they go into dream sleep, they get an apnea that kicks them out. And what happens to them is when they, get, they finally get the chance, they're very REM deprived. They, they can go into REM sleep for two or three hours. Tremendous. They just say, this is fantastic. Now, people like this who have big REM rebounds, when you talk to them in the morning, it's like a religious experience. They say, what happened? What happened? Right? So, so it, can, it, can really be, it can really be quite, quite dramatic. Now, OSA is a risk factor for lots of things. It's a risk factor for heart attack, stroke, and so on, hypertension, because it's a, let me back up here. It's a systemic disorder, because this, this follows an auction going on all night. Every tissue in the body is seeing that. So sleep apnea is basically a systemic disorder, and, and that's why it's a risk factor for many things. Now, what we know is that sleep apnea, the major risk factor for sleep apnea is actually obesity. And we know that obesity rates are increasing. And what we know is this is the prevalence of sleep apnea. In 1994, 4% in men, 2% in women. And you can see the rates that people are now estimating now. So sleep apnea is becoming a commoner problem as we become more obese. We think the link between obesity and sleep apnea is tongue fat. And that this came about initially from, from this picture here. And, and this was, I got up to Jackson Labs where they do mouse genetics and they showed me this picture. And this is called a New Zealand obese mice. It's a very obese mouse. And what happens is the mouse sleeps standing up, right? So they said to me, we get this mouse and he, he gets here and he sleeps standing up. What do you think? I said, this thing's got obstructive sleep apnea, right? This is the original position therapy. He's trying to keep his upper airway open. So what we did is we did imaging. We showed it in big tongues. We showed the airway was smaller. And what you could see is there was actually fat infiltrating the tongue. It was depositing fat in its tongue. And that's where we believe the connection is. Ritz Swab, who's in the audience, he's done some very elegant work doing Dixon imaging where he can actually look at fat in humans. And this is an apneic subject here, and he studied 90 of them and 31 controls. This is the tongue, the yellow is the fat. And what you can see is, even this, though these two individuals have very similar levels of obesity, this individual's got severe sleep apnea and this one doesn't. And really what, what, what he could show was it was the fat in the tongue that was really driving the sleep apnea. And we think this could be uh, due to fat distribution differences. Now, these sleep problems, the chronic insufficient sleep, people not sleeping enough, obstructive sleep apnea, shift work sleep disorders, insomnia, are very common in the workplace. And in fact, we know this in Australia. There's been two reports in Australia. Deloitte and Tush report in uh, 2017 said the prevalence of people in Australia with excessive sleepiness is about 19.3%. A lot of that's insufficient sleep. The estimated prevalence due to sleep disorders they gave us 5.8, and the rest was just due to inadequate sleep. So both inadequate sleep and sleep disorders like sleep apnea give you this very high prevalence uh, of excessive sleepiness. Now, when you get inadequate sleep, whether it's due to a sleep disorder or not sleeping enough, it, it, this is not just about health. 
because it decreases your productivity. How well can you do this? People, absenteeism goes up. You get increased errors. You get increased healthcare costs. And what you get in safety-sensitive organizations is it impairs safety. So this is not just about health. This is about safety and productivity. And the other Deloitte and Touche uh, document, 2011, they showed there was substantial economic impact uh, in, in Australia uh, of having these sleep disorders. Now, how do you address it in the workplace? Well, you can address it at the individual level. You find somebody with sleep apnea, you get them treated. At the group level, you can get educational programs going. And then at the systems level. And the systems level approach would be changing the shift work schedules so you're trying to maximize alertness. It could be building a, a screening program for obstructive sleep apnea. And a number of companies are doing that. They're trying to get on top of this. Now, as I've indicated, safety sensitivity is very important, and it does have an impact in transportation. And so there's major crashes associated with sleep apnea. You can't sustain wakefulness, insufficient sleep, and if you're in the middle of the night, you're, you're at a low, if you like, uh, where you've got a high sleep drive. And I'm going to show you three examples just to make the point about the biology I explained. The first one, and these all have happened in the last two or, two or three years, okay? This is a Metro North train crash. It took place in Long Island. So what happened was the driver of the train went round a curve that was a 30-mile-hour curve, and he went round that curve at 82 miles an hour. He derailed the train, and he killed four people, and 82 were injured. And the National Transportation Safety Board went out there and investigated the cause of the crash, and they found he had severe undiagnosed sleep apnea. So what Metro North is now doing is they're now screening all the drivers, train drivers, for sleep apnea. The same happened in Japan in the bullet trains. There was a bullet train crash in Japan that was again thought to be caused by the driver having a severe obstructive sleep apnea. Another famous case in the United States was the Tracy Morgan crash. Tracy is a, a comedian. He was on Saturday Night Live. He was down at the shore in, in New Jersey and performing, and he came back with his friend in this limo. And this Walmart truck, the driver of the Walmart truck, rolled right into the back of him. And the driver had been awake for more than 24 hours. So he was in that time when he was really impaired. He'd only been driving for about nine hours, but he had driven a long way to get to where he started. And he just sped right into the back of this truck. And the comedian who was with Tracy Morgan was killed, and, and Tracy was severely injured. So that's another famous case. Another case was a, a case, they're all over the place in the U.S. I don't know what it's like here, but another case was this, this in Chicago here. You can take a train, it's not a great train, but you can take a train from downtown Chicago out to Hare Airport. And what happened is at 2.52, this woman who was driving this train, she never stopped. She just kept going, and she went right up the escalator. Right? So the train just kept going right up the escalator. Fortunately, there was 32 minor injuries, nobody was killed. So I, I'm showing you these examples. One is sleep apnea, one is insufficient sleep, and the other is the difficulty of functioning when the clock is saying, no, you're supposed to be asleep. So that's what we've got. What's happening now is we're starting to see in the U.S. some big companies, not all of them, really caring about sleep. Google has these things where the Google employees can take naps. They can go and take naps. Aetna is trying to get their employer, employees out to sleep. And one of the people who's become an absolute advocate for sleep in the United States is Adrian Huffington. 
Adria Anne Huffington started, as you know, the Huffington Post, which was the most successful initial internet-based uh, political uh, thing. What happened to Adria Anne Huffington was when she was building that business, she was only sleeping about four hours a night. And one day she fell over and she, and she cracked, you know, she got facial fractures. And they, they tried to find out what was wrong with her. And they put it down to sleep deprivation. So Adria Anna Huffington has become this incredible advocate. And what she believes, and she's, le she's left the Huffington Post now, and she's putting a lot of energy into this, she believes in what she calls the sleep revolution. She believes that the biggest cultural change since people stopped smoking is people realizing they got to sleep. You got to nap, you got to change the culture in some way to protect the value of sleep. So she's become an incredible advocate, essentially. And, and you read her book, and that's what she's, she's become very knowledgeable about sleep uh, and so on. So the sleep revolution she talks about. So what I've tried to say here, I've tried to indicate sleep is really a public health problem. Short sleep is common. There are many common sleep disorders. It's a problem in our work, workplace. There's a very interesting, fascinating, distinct biology to sleep that we're now starting to elucidate. And education about sleep circadian biology is lacking, and it requires approaches at multiple levels. I was in another task force in New Jersey to do with drowsy driving, and they formed that because there was a mayor of a New Jersey city, a town in New Jersey. What he did is he was a mayor, he was a successful businessman. He decided that he would take his kid back to college in Notre Dame and he would drive at night. And he worked all day and then he went in that car with his daughter and he killed himself and seriously injured her at 5 a.m. And I thought about that. This is a very responsible individual. We failed. We failed to explain to people what the risk of this is. So public education in this area becomes really important. So thank you very much for your attention. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right, okay. Well, oh, sure, sure, sure. Uh, thanks very much, Alan. That was absolutely terrific. Um, I'm sure there are some questions uh, that, and, and Alan's willing to answer them. So just put your hand up and uh, we'll get a microphone to you. Thank you very much. That was really interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about what is going on in the brains of people with dementia during sleep? Dementia. Oh, that, that, no, that's a great question. So, so, so basically, what we, what we believe is, I mean, there's a number of things that are thought about with dementia. Okay, what we believe is that we believe that losing sleep, and you know, particularly losing slow wave sleep, the deep sleep, occurs very early on in the course of Alzheimer's disease. So we believe that abnormalities in sleep is a biomarker essentially of sleep. And we also believe that what happens is when you start to lose sleep, then you start to lose this clearance. So what we know is the A-beta, which is what leads to beta amyloid, that's produced during wakefulness, right? The neurons fire, they produce A-beta. Then you go to sleep, the neuronal activity goes down and the clearance mechanism goes. So there's a vicious cycle. Because when you start to lose sleep, right, you don't have the time for the clearance and so on, and you're producing more A-beta if you're awake more. So that's the first thing. The second thing we believe, and there's good data to support this epidemiologically, if you go out and you do sleep studies in people, let's say in their 80s or something like that, 
what, and, then, and then you come back and you come back five years later, what you find is if you had undiagnosed sleep apnea, you have about a twofold increased risk of developing mild cognitive impairment and dementia during, during that five year period. It's particularly related to the falls in oxygen. So one, one of the questions in, the, in our field, and there's studies now going both here in Sydney and also in the United States, is to ask the question, if I find people with very mild dementia at the beginning, mild cognitive impairment, and they're not completely uh, you know, full-blown dementia, and I find they've got sleep apnea, if I treat them, do I affect the progression? We're not claiming that it causes the thing, but we're, what we're saying is we think it changes the rate of progression. And of course, if you know, if you can change the rate of progression of Alzheimer's, you can buy a lot of years, you know. So the goal then is to find out if we treat people uh, who, who are on that path, because we know that the, the amyloid forms years before you get symptoms, years before you get cognitive impairment. So there's a window there that we can look at. And is it the case if we find people with sleep apnea in that window, and we treat them, can we change the rate of progression? So it's both short sleep and also sleep apnea we think relates to dementia. So thank you very much for the question. Yes. Um, you made the comment of the post-lunch period, the low time. Is there any evidence to say that taking sleep at that post-lunch period is beneficial? Well, no, I, no I, yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great question. So, so, so what we know, people talk about power naps, okay, so, so people talk about power naps, and, and, and one, one of the notions is that even short naps, I mean, there's a downside to naps as well, I'll explain in a minute, but, but even short naps give you restoration, because the restoration process of sleep is very non-linear. Right, to get the complete restoration, you need the six, seven, eight hours, but even 20, 30 minutes gets you a boost, and we know that. And one of the best studies in napping was done by my colleague, David Dinges, at the University of Pennsylvania. He did this with Mark Rosekind, who became then head of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And they did it in long-haul pilots, right? And they were flying from the West Coast to Tokyo. And what they did is they randomized pilots into some who got naps in the middle of the flight and some who didn't. The ones who didn't get naps in the middle of the flight, when they were landing in Tokyo saying, you buckle yourself up, these guys were struggling. They were lapsing. They, they, were, they were having microsleeps. The ones who had the naps, they were functioning. So in fact, in these long haul flights now, I believe they take enough people on the, on the, the pilots and so on that they, have, that they get naps. So naps can be restorative. So there's no question of that. The downside of naps is if you nap for a very long time, let's say you go to sleep at one in the afternoon and you sleep till three or four, you've taken away the drive for sleep. So if you have very long naps, when you try to sleep at night, it's hard to sleep because you don't have the drive. But short laps are certainly a way to enhance performance and, and deal with sleepiness. Yeah. Uh, my question is about, um, about dreams, the, 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 um, the content of dreams, dreams during rapid eye movement sleep. My experience is that um, even, though, even if I wake up in the middle of a dream, that uh, the, the memory of that dream very, very quickly goes away. Mm -hmm. And it's not un unless I, I keep on trying to repeat the dream to myself in, in a mm -hmm. conscious state that I can, I can remember the content of the dream. So my question is this. Is, um, uh, uh, you know, the content of the dream, is, is it of any importance? What's the, um, uh, let's say, the evolutionary advantage of, of us quickly forgetting dreams? 
Right, well, that, that, these are great questions in our field. Actually, the sleep, a lot of sleep research grew out of dreams, right? I mean, the whole idea that you could learn a lot from people's dreams. And it's never been clear that the content of dreams really told you a lot. I mean, so I just want to say that. And people have tried for years to say, can we build out a kind of, do we understand why people are dreaming about what and so on. The one, the one example where, where the dream is, is very, very dangerous to people or damaging to people is in post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, we get a lot of these people coming back from Iraq and so on, and they went to the VA. And what they get is they get flashbacks during sleep, right? They get flashbacks, and, and they're reliving, essentially, the, the very bad thing that they saw when they were in Iraq. And, and as a result, well, and they, they typically get that in REM sleep, obviously. And as a result, they, 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 they find sleep just as horrific. I mean, they're going to go there. They're going to get these flashbacks. They, take, they drink a lot because they're trying to suppress that. Sam Kuno is at the VA knows more about that than I do. But that's one example where you get these very deleterious dreams because you get the flashbacks in people with P, you know, PTSD. Yeah. Would you care to comment on the use of sleeping tablets for those with insomnia? Right, no, that, that's a great question. So, 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 I mean, there's two basic ways to treat, to treat insomnia. One is obviously the pharmacology, you know, like the, the, the kind of benzos or the pseudobenzos, where you can push people to sleep. And then the other way of treating it is what's called co cognitive behavioral therapy, CBTI. Right? And in, in, in your cognitive behavioral therapy, what you do is you have various things that you do. You get people to relax. And a major part of it is sleep restriction. Right? So the idea is if, I, if I've got insomnia, I go to bed. I'm there at 11 o'clock. I can't get to sleep. You know, and I may only get four or five hours of sleep and I wake up in the morning and then I become extremely anxious about sleeping, right? And so the idea of cognitive behavioral therapy is you actually sleep restrict people. So you, you say, you can't go to sleep till two. And then you try to get them with consolidated sleep. And then once you get them with consolidated sleep, you can increase the amount of sleep they get. And it's very effective. And there's head-to-head -head comparisons between CBTI and, and, and using drugs. And what you find is they're similarly efficacious, but the CBTI has a longer term. It lasts longer. The effect seems to last longer. So in our world, the treatment of choice for us is not pharmaceuticals. The treatment of choice for us is to use CBTI. And of course, the issue, the issue with um, if you use uh, the, the, the pharmaceutical things and then you try to stop it, you get this intense rebound insomnia, right? Because you, you, you don't need your sleep promoting system because you're, you're, you're giving it orally, right? And, and then if you try to stop it, you can get this rebound insomnia and it's very difficult. I'm not saying you're dependent in a way, but it's, it's hard to get people off of that uh, once they've been on it for a long period of time. So the treatment of choice for insomnia is CBTI. I know you've got a number of people in Sydney here who, who do excellent work in that area. Yeah. Um, is there a link between uh, long-term short uh, sleep deprivation and dementia, as in the example of Margaret Thatcher? That's my first question. Right. The next one is, um, is uh, the absence of light total darkness really important for melatonin? And my third, third question is, and is it true that starting sleep before 11 p.m. is healthier for you? The folk teaching and final well, question. Okay. <laughs> well, well, let me, I had let me just say, so, so I uh, no, I, I think the notion is that the, 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 these people, I mean, 
We haven't studied a lot of them, but Louis Patachet has got quite a number of families now who we studied who have got short sleep, uh, you know, genetically induced short sleep. And it doesn't seem that they, they suffer adverse consequences long term. So, you know, the question then is, well, why is that? If it's so beneficial to these genes that give you short sleep, why don't we all have them? Why didn't, why didn't natural selection get us to a point that we all did that? So that's an important question. But certainly the data would say that these people with short sleep that's genetic uh, don't get long adverse consequences. People who don't meet their sleep need clearly do, and as indicated, that then we believe that that's part of the, the whole dementia, you know, progress, the progression of dementia. In terms of melatonin, I mean, melatonin, as you're right, I mean, it, 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 you know, if, the, if there's light, it suppresses melatonin levels, particularly blue light. Uh, and so that's why it's really important when you go to sleep uh, that, you know, you, you don't have light because you're allowing your melatonin to come up and, and, and get good quality sleep. Uh, and that's why people wear these blue light blocking glasses because that's saying you're doing no blue light, right? Uh, in terms of constant darkness, uh, right behind you is somebody who comes from Iceland. And, and there it's a bit of a challenge, right? Because <laughs> you have the long Sundays with no dark and then the dark in the winter. So, so there are challenges with that. So, uh, but you, th these are important points that the environmental influences on sleep and circadian are very important. And sl uh, sleeping before 11, starting to well, sleep Well, no, I, I think it varies between people, as I've indicated. So some people, are, you know, as I said, the larks, they go to bed before 11, they go to bed at 9, they may be up at 5 or something like that. And then there's other people who, who are the opposite. And it's the opposite group, the people who are real extreme owls. That's the group of people who really have trouble. And what we call in our field is we call it delayed sleep phase. And these people, they can't get to sleep until about 3 a.m. But when they sleep, it's perfectly normal. They sleep until noon. They're fine. But you can't do that in this society. You can't go to your employer and say, let's I'm showing up at noon, <laughs> and I'm willing to work late. And so our society forces it on these people. And you commonly see that in teenagers. The prevalence of so-called delayed sleep phase is common in teenagers. And that's why there's a big movement in the United States in certain school districts to delay school start times. Because what you do is, you know, to suit the teachers, right? You have these kids out there at 6 in the morning, 6.30, waiting for the school bus to get to school. And then they get to school, they haven't slept well. They're having REM sleep in their first class. I mean, they've got their head down, getting REM sleep and trying to do the thing. So, so the timing for sleep varies between people. That's the important thing. Uh, but the people who really get into trouble from this are people with delayed sleep phase because they can sleep perfectly normally, but society forces them to show up at the, the normal time. Um, yeah. oh, up here. Um, I wanted to know um, uh, if you could please talk about rapid leg movements and its relationship to sleep apnea. And also, I just wanted to know um, if everybody has in the population has at least some sleep apnea episodes or is it only people who are prone to that? Thank you. Well, let me talk about the. I mean, the, the, I mean what, what you have is a condition I didn't talk about much, which is called restless leg syndrome. And restless leg syndrome, it's a sensation you get. And it's a sensation you get, and it's got a definite circadian rhythm to it. So the cessation comes on at night before you go to sleep. And, and, and it gets worse if you lie inactive. 
So inactivity brings it out and it comes on at night. And that's why we consider it a sleep disorder because it can be very difficult to sleep, right, if you have these sensations in your legs and so on. Now, restless leg syndrome is associated with what we call periodic limb movements, where you get these rhythmic movements of your limbs and so on. Now, it doesn't happen in everybody with restless legs doesn't have periodic limb movements, and everybody with periodic limb movements doesn't have restless legs, but it's much more common. Uh, there's recent, a recent paper showing that, that people with mild sleep apnea who also have periodic limb movements have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. So what happens with periodic limb movements is you can get these awakenings, these arousals, sudden arousals can occur with the limb movements as well. And if you add that on top of sleep apnea, then it looks like you have a bit a more deleterious outcome. Uh, so PLMs are important. It's unclear in a lot of people what the clinical significance is, but we, you know that's a work in progress. Progress. But there's certainly, I mean, restless legs used to be thought of like a fake, people just made this up. And, and then the genes, we found genes for restless, not we, but the, our field found genes for restless legs, which really established the biology. At, at early age of onset restless legs, like if you get it when you're th 30 or under, it's very familial. And, and certainly there's genes been identified for them. <laughs> <Good. laughs> well, I, I think it's just now for us to say thank you so much, okay, Alan, you, for a fantastic talk. All right. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash Sydney underscore ideas.